Good morning. We're continuing this series that started last week, and it's this idea that the early church had faith in this story, and the story gave a lens to see the world through. Um, faith itself was a journey, and this is something, what I'm talking through is it's things that the church has struggled with, and it's things that I've personally struggled with. When I experienced God and I, and I experienced the love of him, I came to a church, and oftentimes the church, I would have, a, I would have hard days. I would have good days, and, and the church thought, well, why is your faith switch not flipped on? And to realize that the early church saw faith in degrees, to realize that, that faith is a journey, it's a wrestling match, it's something that gives you a framework for life, but you're working on fitting life into this framework every day. That was a weight off my shoulders that I don't have to be an 11 out of 10 every day. Faith is by these degrees. And so we're, we're looking at the Apostles' Creed. It's the early church creed. It's the creed that every new believer in the early church would recite when they were baptized in the church. This was the core of their foundation of faith. And so we're in the next lines. We, we looked at two words last week. I believe. We got through these two words. Fortunately, those two words are repeated in the Apostles' Creed, so technically we've covered a few more reads, words of the Apostles' Creed. And we're at the next phrase here. We're at, I believe, and now we're at, in God, the Father Almighty. And so if we have a story, and a story is what we put our faith in, we are introduced to the first character of that story right now. It's God. And in his role in the story is Father Almighty. And it's here that many people, as I've considered the, the difficulty of the church, how the church, how I struggled with the church, how we see people leaving the church or not coming into the church, it's here that many people shut down. In God, the Father Almighty. And I struggle with why do people shut down here? Why are people leaving? Father, God Almighty. Well, why are people leaving this? And in my opinion, as I've thought about this, it's possibly because of how we, the church, not, not each individual one of us being guilty, but how the church has represented God as Father Almighty. And so I'm going to be, if I had a message to give to the church for my own personal journey, it's going to be this message today. If I had to stake my life on a message right now, this is it. And there's something that happened recently in the church, I believe. And it's been this shift to Father God Almighty and speaking about him as Daddy or Papa. It's been this image that God is this powerful, intimate Father God. And the way it's talked about is that he's watching over my life. He's watching over the life of everyone in, his, in the sandbox that he created. And he's pointing at that one and being like, look at what he's doing. He's clapping at that one. And as this powerful, loving Father God, he also always stands ready to jump into the sandbox at a moment's notice when he's needed. It's all well and good. It's a beautiful picture. Until you can't see him jump in the sandbox when you need him. How do we explain 
that this daddy that the mainstream church talks about, how do we explain that this daddy is sitting there watching the world burn at times? Watching the world burn. How do we explain that we're telling people there's this loving daddy and he's the perfect daddy. He's more perfect than any dad on earth. And I would say even possibly some of the worst dads on earth would be jumping in by now. I would consider that it's even a struggle for some people as they watch murders, suicides, And they say, why hasn't this loving daddy jumped in yet? And I'm speaking possibly a bit out of experience. I was there. I've shared my story a few years ago when I was first here that I've struggled with that suicide issue. When I don't know where my loving daddy is. So what do you do when daddy is not rescuing you like you think any other loving daddy would? What are the answers for this hands-off approach? I told you last week, I struggled uh, last year when I saw Afghanistan meltdown and atrocities happening. And I'm like, Daddy, where are you? We can probably all say some things that we've heard to explain this. Why isn't Daddy here right now? Why can I not feel him? Why is he not doing something while he's watching people die and, and people suffer? Some of the things that I've heard... He's letting this play out for a greater glory. This is a test for you to pass. Don't worry. This is all part of God's plan. Two of the worst that I've heard. Number one is the Job response. Well, what did you do wrong? He would fix this if you could figure out where you're going wrong. What sin is in your life that is keeping him from helping you? And the other worst, who are you to question what God is doing to his glory? He has made you and he owns you and he can do what he wants. And this creates a split between a loving daddy and this other being. And so this was a struggle for me. It was. Um, We see this issue, and yet we're told often just to let it go. Just have faith. Just let it go. But many can't. They enter into this struggle. It's a struggle to hold faith in an all-powerful, loving God who I'm supposed to look to as more perfect than any earthly father. And why I look at him as this, I also sense him sitting at the end edge of the sandbox, not coming to help his children play. He's not coming to help them while the most horrific things happen before my eyes. It's impossible for some. And I think some find it easier to reject this God completely than to solve this problem in their head. And so they don't come into the church or they do and they give it a shot but eventually something happens in life and their faith falters. They can no longer reconcile this loving daddy with the God they don't feel. 
And so in my opinion, the, the, the fault is, it's largely the, the church. It's what the church has sold. And I believe the church has somewhat misunderstood God. And so we've sold a little bit of a false picture to people over these last several decades. So what I'd like to do as we're going through the creed and the story of our faith, I'd like to revisit the creed where it talks about God as Father, the Almighty Father. And one of the first things to know is that it doesn't mean God is a male figure. It doesn't mean that he's this male figure and he's distinct from his children like we would picture a human father distinct from his children. Early Christians in their writings, they actually took great pains to make clear that when God is referred to as a father, it's a genderless reference. And they wanted to do this because they didn't want God to be associated with pagan gods. Pagan gods have sexuality. Pagan gods are male and female. And pagan gods are subservient to their passions because of their sexuality, because they're like humans. And so the early church, they wanted to present this God that he's not gendered. And so early believers, they believed that God transcended gender. He transcended being itself. In scripture, God is also referred to as El Shaddai. El Shaddai is the many-breasted one. It's a female reference. It can also mean the mighty-breasted one. And what it means is that he nourishes his church like a mother nourishes her baby, and his breasts will never run dry. In the book of Job, there's another female reference to God as he talks about the womb of God is what creation is birthed out of. Through the Bible, you'll see God nursing, birthing. He's talked to as, about as being the mother of the house or the woman of the house. He's even talked about as being a mama bear. He's even talked about as being in labor pains. And so the early church, they didn't have this manly image of God. Although they could use father to describe aspects of him, they would use female adjectives as well, or these descriptions. And while God's genderless, we do have to relate to him with our senses. And there's a fatherly sense to him. So you can describe him as a father. There's a motherly sense. There's a shepherd sense. There's an eagle sense. You'll see all these senses of God in the Bible. And as things, who you and I are, we have to relate to God and picture him as things, as what we comprehend. And so we relate to him with these ideas. But in reality, none of these facets encapsulate God. And here in the creed, we have the word father. But the early church did not want to encapsulate him as father. There's been, again, this, this daddy movement where this is his, one of the strongest encapsulations we give God. And it falls short. The early church here in the creed used father to speak of being a source. Not a male figure distinct from children being a source. And you can see how they would think this in the ancient world. The father figure of a household was the source for the family. The household would not even be a household if the father had not started it. The household owed its existence from the source of the father. 
No children would be around without the seed of the father. Even the honor and class of a household was sourced from the father's honor, from the father's class. So what, how do we understand this source idea? Moses kind of figured it out at the burning bush. He's told by God, go talk to Pharaoh. And he says, well, I, I kind of, he's a little timid. And, and one of the things he asks is, well, who are you? I'd like to say who, to tell Pharaoh who God, who sent me to him? Who are you? And God, I, I can picture him somewhat searching the vocabulary of humanity. And he cannot come up with a name. All he says is this verb, to be. I am to be. The Bible actually says, I am that I am. A better description is I exist because I exist. You cannot put a name on God other than this idea of existence. God is existence itself. That's the best way he can describe himself. When Moses says, who do I tell Pharaoh is sending me? God says, tell him that existence is sending you. And what this means, if God is existence itself, is that he does not exist over there and make something that exists over there. It can't happen that way because nothing can exist apart from God. God is existence itself. And for something to exist, God must loan out of his own existence. Colossians 1.17 tells us this. This is one, one place in scripture where this is seen. Colossians 1.17 says, He himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. This means that everything only exists within God's existence. Because of this dynamic, the early church, they, they called creation the womb of God. Because we could never completely be birthed and exist apart from him. We always have to be found within God. And this intimate connection is a much different picture, I believe, than what the church has often painted in recent times. God is not there at the edge of the sandbox watching us. He's not there as I'm going through a tough time and I'm praying and begging, God, can you get in here? Can you jump in here and help? You're supposed to be the perfect father and yet you're just watching. That's not who they saw him as. He is intrinsically tied to his creation because he cannot exist there apart from what exists here. This is a lot of philosophical stuff, and I apologize if you haven't had your coffee. <laughs> Got to get that brain working. But, but uh, there's this idea that basically if God moved there, if he moved there away from something here, the something here, and the here would not exist because God cannot move away from it. Now, I want to be clear with this, that God is not a thing. That's deism. 
Deism believed that God made everything and then he stepped back. He was the watch wine, the watchmaker that this has been described in many different ways. And so God is a thing, he makes this thing and he removes his own himself as a thing from this thing. God is not a thing, that's deism. But neither, even though he's tied to everything, neither is he the sum of all things. That's pantheism. God is no thing at all. And yet everything that we picture exists within him. And so this is a much different picture than this loving daddy that I, I, I'm told is, is there, but then I'm like, well, where, where is he in this moment? I don't see him. I don't feel him. And so in the middle of suffering, if God is in everything, lending his existence, if he's always here, why in the middle of suffering do we often cry out, God, where are you? Why do we not see him? It isn't that he's gone. In the military, we had to fight this thing called complacency. Complacency is a confidence or a relaxation that you get when you're in an environment for so long. And part of what happens is when you get so used to your environment, you actually become blind to it. In Iraq, before we went to Iraq for the first time, back in the early 2000s, um, we were told the bombs are often hidden in the trash piles. Okay, we're going to Iraq. We've got to watch out for trash piles because that's where the bombs are. You go to Iraq, and every street is lined with trash piles. There is no trash service. Most of the trash goes on the side of the street and trash is for miles down the street. There is trash everywhere. Well, crap. <laughs> what am I going to do with this? <laughs> Soon, when you're driving around and nothing happens and you become complacent to your environment, you don't even see trash anymore. You don't even see something that is obviously on the side of the road. And so we drove around and we, when we first got there, look for the trash piles. Probably only a week or two in, <laughs> we're no longer seeing trash piles. They're everywhere. They've blended in and we're no longer aware of them. That is until one day we're driving past one of the million of trash piles. And my driver and I both see at the same time wires coming out of the trash pile and running into the bushes. Fortunately, the bomb that was there failed to detonate. So I'm here. But you can imagine that that moment of stress renewed our focus on trash piles. <laughs> we had become unaware of trash piles and suddenly we encountered a bomb in a trash pile and you better believe we started looking at every trash pile again. I'm saying this to say that what happens in our environment when something is so closely tied to our environment is that we often can become blind to it. And it can take that pause. It can take that, close your eyes, shake your head, and look again before you can see what's always been there, but you've become conditioned to it and you're no longer aware of it. So what I would say is if you can't see God, nothing can exist without him. He's in everything. He lends of himself for anything to be here. So he's there. 
And if you have come to where you can't see him, take a pause, clear your head and look again. Now, the nice thing is that there are some dramatic moments in our life where we can vividly see God. We see God as vividly as my driver and I saw this bomb. And it renews your focus on God and makes you reaware that he's everywhere. Just like suddenly we had lost focus on trash piles and this bomb reawakened us. Oh, there's trash everywhere and there might be bombs in it. Major moments with God are those trash pile moments where suddenly it reawakens you and you go, God is everywhere. But we haven't solved this issue yet because if God is everywhere and I'm claiming he's all powerful, then why is he still letting everything happen that's happening? How do I explain this? For many, it's even more reason to reject God. Okay, great. God is in everything. God is everywhere. And so he has no excuse because he knows everything that's going on and he's not stopping it with his power. First, I, I've come to realize, because this, this is what I struggled with, and I first came to realize that this is still a bit of seeing God there and not here. I'm still saying God's power is he, there, but he's not choosing to put his power here. And so it's still a bit of the old way of thinking. And there's actually an idea that if God is everywhere and you're saying, why isn't he then fixing this? What it really means is he's actually there experiencing it because he's in everything. And so he's there with hurt, with pain, with joy, everything. And he experiences what you're experiencing, the good and the bad. And when you're experiencing pain and you're like, God, why are you not fixing this? God is in that pain and he's experiencing it as well. Only while you're experiencing your little sphere of pain, God is experiencing it a billion times over with billions of people through the world. So we get this problem, though. We want a God who will interject himself. And he's not. But the reason he's not is because he's not a God who will treat us, even part-time, like animatrons. It's not the God who loans his existence. He says, I will loan you this existence. I will hand you this existence, and then I'm going to control you, for better or worse. And actually, a God who would hand his existence to something and then invade that existence and do what he wants, even if it's for the good, that type of God is actually a pagan God. Through history, pagan gods were understand to, understood to manipulate things. And all we could do is submit to our fate. Pagan gods would sometimes work for our benefit. Pagan gods would sometimes let bad things happen. But it was all fated because the pagan gods would invade creation and do what they wanted. Sometimes we liked it, sometimes we didn't. God's not a pagan God. He's not like that. And Jesus came to show that. 
Jesus came to show that God doesn't use dictator-style manipulation. And Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen God. And what we see is we see a God who suffers with us and due to us. Yet what we find with God's power is that when pain, when violence, when suffering leads even to the point of death of Jesus, God's power brings new life out of that, even though he suffers through it with you. And so the example of Jesus is that God doesn't dictate everything. He's not a dictator who runs a controlled environment. He's not going to do that to people who he gave of his own existence. I'm giving you existence and now I'm going to run everything. His power actually has the ability to work with, sustain, and continually bring new life into a creation that oftentimes I feel like it's doing everything it can to tear itself apart and destroy itself. Rowan Williams, this, this is a favorite quote of mine, and, and it's a little bit long, but he says, and, and I believe he captures this idea greatly. He says, we can get the idea of almightiness a bit wrong when we think of it in terms of a great wish-fulfilling fantasy instead of seeing it as a way of saying that God always has the capacity to do something fresh and different, to bring something new out of a situation. And the reason he can do this is because nothing outside of himself can frustrate him. So what almightiness is for God in this sense is a reason to trust him. This is why belief and trust in God the Father Almighty is so different from wish fulfillment and projection about some all-powerful character who can just do what he wants and get what he wants straight away. He doesn't have to work with his creation. Instead, what we discover is a God who never runs out of love and liberty. What matters is to grasp the idea of a God whose power is made clear in his patience and his capacity to always bring something fresh into a situation. And again, we can begin to see why the execution of Jesus would seem to the first Christians not to be a defeat, but a moment of decisive divine power. So what I'm saying is that Number one, God's in everything. And number two, God's not a violator. He's not a pagan God to whom we say, well, God's, God's not intervening, so I'm fated to this. Or God is intervening, intervening, and this is fated to be okay. God doesn't exactly work that way. There's this play with his creation that he has given of his existence, and he's working in this dynamic. But I don't want I don't, I don't to belittle any suffering pain, injustice, oppression. I don't want to belittle these major things that happen in our world. I, I, don't, I can't compete with some others, but I have suffered in my own life. 
And what I can attest to in my suffering is that there is a consolation of this permeating reality of God who is not there watching horrible things happen. But by the nature of God, he is existence itself. And so because I am existing, he is existing through me. And he is suffering with everything I'm suffering. And he is suffering in me, with me. And we're talking about a church community. And what is the purpose of God's body? And part of it is to go through suffering together. And so not only is God suffering in me and with me on an individual level, but he's suffering with me through others who suffer with me. Because he is in them suffering for me just as they suffer with me. And so God's not just suffering what I'm suffering. He is suffering what I am suffering multifold as he suffers through it with me and he is suffering with others who are walking alongside me. From personal experience, I can tell you that it is night and day to know that there is someone suffering with you. There is someone who is experiencing what you're experiencing, can relate to what you're experiencing. And simply knowing that someone is with you in suffering can be night and day difference. And so I no longer look at a father God who's out there and he's decided not to interject himself for some reason now. But I'm looking to a fatherly source out of which I am birthed, out of which I am maintained, and he suffers with me all the time. I will admit, this doesn't completely fix the problem. Suffering sucks. <laughs> it is not fun. No matter who is with you, how many are with you, suffering is not easy. It's not enjoyable. And here's where there has to be a little trust in God. You can comprehend him all around you. You can comprehend that his power is there. He's able to suffer with you. And despite it feels like everything's trying to tear itself apart, his power is holding everything together. And it has room to come in and continue to work to bring new life. So it's not like he's barely holding everything together and he's got nothing left. He has the power to hold everything together. He has the power to work with the dynamics of what's going on and bring new stuff in. And what I have to trust and what is terrifying, we talked last week about how faith can be this terrifying leap into this transcendent relationship. And there's a level of trust getting married, there's a level of trust that has to go both ways. And here's where a level of trust comes into God. And this is something that I, I've just realized recently after 10 years of, of wrestling with what, I, what I'm saying today. I have to trust that God knows that my existence, your existence and your existence, God knows that these existences here today will prove so valuable that all the pain, hurt, and suffering that God experiences to in, by investing his existence into us, 
and everything that we'll experience. I have to trust that God would not have lent of his own existence, joined us in suffering, if his will not prove to be worth it. I have to trust that. I have to trust that God can see this picture of existence and know that it is better that you exist and we all suffer through this because I know what's coming. Or I know, despite your suffering, I know what you bring to this world. So knowing that God suffers with me, knowing that he's suffering and others suffering with me, it can help. But it's not the full solution. There is a level of trust that I have to put in God. I don't know if it's a lot to wrap your heads around, if this, is a, if this is a paradigm change for you or not. I'm 10 years into this, and I still haven't wrapped my head around it. <laughs> it might seem revolutionary, I don't know. But what you'll find from Scripture and from the early church is that this is not revolutionary at all. This is how they understood God. Got to watch the time here. I'll, I'll close with this. We gravitate to big things. It's natural. They're exciting. They're dramatic. We gravitate to these big things. But what happens with the big things is it can make us want this false father figure who stands by the sandbox because it's really cool when we picture him charging into the sandbox. It's cool to think that I have God on call. And that's this idea of this big thing. But what we realize in scripture is that God is most intimately known in the minuscule. He's the quiet whisper of a voice. He's not the whirlwind. He's the average man who came as a lamb to be just one more person killed by imperial power, by worldly power. And so God is intimately known in the minuscule. He is known in this small gathering of people right here, more intimately than in powerful moments, I would, I would contend. British theologian Sarah Coakley, she tells us that God's power is not a violating dictatorship, but his power is hidden in gentle omnipotence. The world exists because of his gentle but all-embracing power. And yet with his gentle and all-embracing power, we're free. As we close with this song, I'm trying to open and close with this song called I Believe. And it's the Apostles' Creed put to music. And so this is the belief. When you hear and when you sing of Father God, God, Father Almighty, when you sing these words, this is the image. God is there with you. He's with us. He is intimately known right here. So join me as, as we sing this. If this has stirred anything in you, or if you just don't want to go into the week without a little bit of prayer, Again, I'll stand in the back and I'll watch, but um, if somebody wants to pray, just raise your hand. If you see someone with their hand raised and nobody's praying for him, would you jump in? This is community. This is the minuscule where just a few people are together and we most...
powerfully experience God.